This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Precision medicine is still a concept in transplantation, but at UCSF, we're putting it, uh, we're starting to put it in practice. And uh, the next topic is going to be discussed by Minnie Sarwal and June Shoji. And we've given them like 20 minutes to cover this important subject. Thank you, Flavio. Flavio keeps cutting our time back, um, I think, every few, uh, few hours. So we'll try and take you through this journey of futuristic medicine. So we have the NIH. We have the White House with President Obama talking all about precision uh, medicine and precision health. And we believe at UCSF that we should be looking at all of the new technologies and taking you on a little uh, fun ride of what futuristic, uh, really precision uh, medicine in the context of transplantation uh, is uh, looking like and can look like in the future at UCSF. These are my disclosures. Uh, so, so moving on. So what do we actually look at to try and harness to understand precision medicine? So there are a lot of evolving tools for transplantation and translational research, moving all the way from genomics and proteomics and the interaction of all of these technologies with each other. So we really have a very exciting toolbox to actually apply to transplant medicine. And I'm actually going to talk to you about one aspect of this toolbox today, which is really sequencing. You've heard all that there is really with the advent of sequencing, we can actually start to understand what our genes are doing to us and how they actually can translate into function. And the community that has looked at this the most is really the, the community for cancer and infectious disease, where you can start mapping diseases and genes one-to-one. -one. But even more interesting, you can start to see that a gene for one disease can actually be informative for a different disease. So you can see, like, right at top, you have, like, genes for coronary artery disease, but they're also involved in type 2 diabetes and melanoma. So really understanding the function of these genes becomes really imperative. And why is this important? Because genomics and sequencing is in your home today. You have personalized genomics where you have 23andMe and all of these other companies where the cost of sequencing is going to drop to about $100. So we are going to be able to offer this to ourselves and also to our patients to better manage disease. And why, again, is this important? Because through this, we can also start to design new drugs. And here's a very quick example in cancer. Uh, basically, they mapped that there was a mutation uh, for patients with malignant melanoma. You can see that the patient on the left is the same patient. And you can see this is basically a PET scan showing essentially widespread disease. So the brain and the bladder light up as normal, but you can see there is fulminant disease all over the patient. But yet when they understood a particular mutation and targeted a drug to, a drug to it, two weeks later, you can see complete resolution of that disease. But transplant is not Mendelian, so how can we apply this to better understand transplantation? And I think the reason to do this is because if you look at these survival curves, despite all of the wonderful work you heard from the rest of our team here today, we're not able to change the decline of these curves over time. And that's because despite all the advent in HLA matching surgical outcomes, immunosuppression, doing improved monitoring with protocol biopsies, etc., we have not been able to really cause the accelerated loss of these organs over time really to antibody-mediated rejection. 
And basically, if you look at studies of protocol biopsies over time, you can see there's this relentless accrual of chronic injury that occurs over time. And the biggest impact is really time after transplant. So really, one of the things I'm going to show you about precision medicine is how can we better harness how to understand which patients are at greatest risk of this, but before transplant, before we actually put the organ into the patient. And there are lots of tools for these kind of research. And actually, June is going to talk to you about some of these tools and the application of them in the post-transplant setting. But I'm really going to talk to you about the application of these tools in the pre-transplant setting, looking at DNA. So to do this, we actually did this study. It was funded by the UCSF Catalyst Program. We actually decided to do sequencing for all of the expressed genes in the donor and the recipient and basically say that if there was a mismatch, if the gene was expressed in the donor, absent in the recipient, you're more likely to have an immune response to it, and maybe that immune response can be harmful. So that was the hypothesis behind this. So we took highly sensitized patients at UCSF and at Johns Hopkins, and we actually sequenced them. Uh, looking at their express genes and looked at the mismatch. And the idea was that if you had this mismatch, that mismatch could be immunogenic. We also sequenced the donor kidney itself to see how much of this mismatch was actually expressed in the kidney, how many of them were enriched in the immune response, and also expressed in the endothelium, because these are all tissues that are important in the generation of antibody-mediated rejection. And this paper was recently published. So to cut to the chase, what did we find? When we did this exome sequencing, we can see that clearly patients in red are those who developed antibody-mediated rejection after transplant. In blue, T-cell-mediated rejection after transplant. In green, these were patients who were stable. You can see definitely there is greater HLA variant mismatch that occurs with, with people who reject after transplant, but the trend is not as significant. But you can see there are all these non-HLA genes that have variants that we don't even recognize. We don't even know what they are. But you can see that that difference exists across the expressed genome, and it actually tracks with their risk for developing rejection after transplant. So we actually did a lot of bioinformatic and computational analysis, and you can see we came up with a, uh, a stack of about 123 variants. And when we looked at these 123 variants and we looked at the way the HLA genes were going to separate the patients, you can see that variants across HLA really didn't separate these patients. Again, the color coding is the same. But when we actually looked at uh, non-HLA variants, you can see that the difference was actually marked you could see you could separate these patients into these three categories, and you can see the red and blue, which are the rejection groups, were on the left, and on the right were the stable patients. So you could, by running these variants across a donor-recipient pair before transplant, assess what their risk of rejection was actually after transplant. So what does this actually mean? I won't show you but this should, uh, in detail, but this shows that the, these variants were distributed all over the chromosomes. So even though HLA is in chromosome 6, these were actually all over. This is a circus plot. And you can see we validated this. So we went to uh, a, a consortium at the NIH run by Fui Kwok where there were 800 donor-recipient uh, pairs. We applied these 123 variants to those donor-recipient pairs, and we could beautifully separate, again, patients who were good developing rejection after transplant on the left with patients who are actually not developing rejection. So it's great to do exome sequencing, yes, but it's about $1,000 a pop to do the sequencing. So how do we reduce this to clinical care? So to make this more accessible, we actually de developed SNPs to these 123 variants, which can be run on a fluidized machine 
uh, four-hour turnaround, cost of goods about $250, so reducing it to clinical practice. And what does that tell us? Again, we looked at a separate cohort from Johns Hopkins, and you can see again on the red on the y-axis are patients who have antibody-mediated rejection. T-cell-mediated rejection are stable. So these 123 variants before transplant can again separate the risk of developing an event after transplant really very nicely. So we call this the TRAP, or the Transplant Risk Assessment Panel. 123, we have the array. We, can, we propose that you could run something like this on all living donors. If you have five living donors for a recipient, you could run it and develop the risk of rejection to each individual donor-recipient pair, and it could, could, could basically allow you to select the appropriate donor. You could also potentially titrate immunosuppression to that immune risk. And to take this further, this is uh, so work that is still ongoing. We're basically trying to see where these variants exist on these various proteins. We've enriched for variants that are surface-expressed, which are likely to be more immunogenic. You can see we're starting to see that they indeed are. The majority of these variants are surface-expressed. And we're actually working with the Terasaki Foundation, which formed One Lambda, which is now purchased by Thermo Fisher, to actually take some of these variants and to do peptide mapping and therefore enrich the current content of the PRA plates. So PRA plates that look for anti-HLA antibodies, we can enrich for these variants and have a beta version of that PRA plate so that you can also have these additional non-HLA variant, uh, variants on the plate so you can start to screen for antibodies to these variants. We would also be checking to see if they are complement fixing, and the idea would be is that you can start to Every three to four months with your HLA antibody or DSA testing, you can also do the non-HLA DSA testing. So therefore, the future would be as we develop these plates, we can actually really improve post-transplant monitoring, and this post-transplant monitoring will really be comprehensive. So that would be great. We could have earlier detection of AMR post-transplant in addition to stratifying them pre-transplant, and this would hopefully translate into improved graft survival. It would improve those curves. So really, I think this is the last slide. We want to adapt to the precision movement in medicine that's happening. We want to apply that to transplantation. And I think you don't just stay at HLA. You should go beyond to non-HLA. We, we are currently working on a UC-wide initiative to start to screen donor-recipient pairs. We have about a 1,200 fresh transplants across the five UCs, so this is a goldmine for us. Uh, we can be smarter about donor selection in these kind of pools. We can improve immunosuppression risk stratification. And we can also do more rational drug design and trial design. So we're doing some three exciting trials at UCSF. Flavio's talked to you about some of them. One of them is really doing a Belatacep de novo trial. So could we actually uh, assess which patients have reduced risk of rejection and AMR and put them on Belatacep? There's a Maraveric uh, CCR5 blockade trial that Peter is uh, a PI of, and that drug can maximize survival by reducing fibrosis, but because of the increased risk of rejection in HIV-positive patients, can we again select the right patient to go on that trial? We're also doing a a trial called PROBE, where we are weaning immunosuppression in these patients, and some of the post-transplant monitoring tools that June is going to talk about will tell you how we can apply some of that precision medicine in the post-transplant space. So with that, I'd like to uh, thank all the people and the funding agencies that have supported this work. Thank you. I wanted to um, take this time to discuss how we could use the tools of precision medicine um, to optimize uh, the outcomes of one of our latest immunosuppressant medications, Belatacept. So Belatacept is a co-stimulatory blocker. Um, it's composed of an FC fragment of IgG connected to the extracellular component of CTLA-4 um, that has very high affinity for B71 as well as B72 on the antigen-presenting cells. 
So how does T-cell activation work? Um, so there's signal one, uh, which basically is where the T-cell antigen is um, interacting with the donor antigen on the antigen-presenting cells. Um, this is followed by co-stimulation um, from the co-stimulatory molecule for the activated T-cells sorry, um, to, the, okay, to the ligands on the antigen-presenting cells. With this activation, um, there's going to be either a positive co-stimulation leading to um, uh, proliferation of the t- uh, activation of the T cells or to, um, the, um, to the end of the immune response. However, if there's no co-stimulation, what happens is that there's going to be either cell death um, or apoptosis or energy um, or no immune response. So what Belanacep does is that it takes advantage of one of the uh, well-known um, co-stimulatory pathways of, um, that we know of, which is the CD28 to B71 and B72. Um, so what it does is that basically the components are um, highly, um, highly interacts with the B71, B72, and the antigen-presenting cell, preventing the CD28 to actually interact with the antigen-presenting cells. CD28 is, avail- uh, is present on the T cells CD4 and CD8. Um, and this basically leads to T-cell energy and apoptosis, so no, stim- um, no stimulation. So Belatacept was approved after two pivotal trials um, um, in benefit, which it looked at the standard um, kidneys or the living donor kidneys, as well as the benefit EXT trial, which is looked at, looked at the extended criteria donor recipients. Um, and both of those studies basically showed that the Belatacept actually improved the outcomes of long-term kidney transplantation compared to the cyclosporin class. We had a, um, the seven-year follow-up was published in 2016, which showed that the long-term outcomes of kidney transplantations were improved in the bladicept arm compared to the cyclosporin arm. And so what this shows is that the uh, GFR in both bladicept arms, so there was one that actually had a higher dose of bladicept and one was a lower dose of bladicept. Um, so those actually had patients, the GFR increased over time from the start of the, um, from the moment of post-transplant up to the seven-year mark. Um, and you could actually see that there's actually a negative um, slope for the cyclosporin level. Furthermore, they also showed that the patient and graft survival were improved um, in the patients who were on the bladicept arm, both the intensive arm as well as in the lower um, bladicept dose arm, compared to the cyclosporin arm here. However, there is a one roadblock that kind of prevents the, um, basically the widespread use of bladicept is everyone's concern about the increased risk of rejection. So from the one-year um, tr- one data from the benefit trials, it showed that there is an increased risk of rejection among the bladicept arm. It was 17% compared to the psychosporum arm, which was 7%. They've also noted that the rejection rates or the re- types of rejection for the patients on bladicept were actually more severe. Um, and so for the bladicept patients, we don't actually, or we don't um, recommend using bladicept on, on patients who are highly synthesized, and those patients were actually not included in the bladicept trial. Um, and so for the seven-year follow-up data, this actually was also still consistent with what, what was seen in the first and the one-year um, incidence rates. Basically, the um, incidence of bladicept or incidence of rejection in the bladicept arm was higher. Um, than those in cyclosporin, but it was mostly before the 36-month uh, mark. So who is at risk for rejection with bladicept? Most likely patients who have a high, you know, extensive repertoire for memory cells are going to be um, 
are going to have um, bladder resistant rejection. Um, this is most likely because that the memory cells actually do not need co-stimulation for full activation, so you can still have rejection in patients who are on bladder So this brings up to two questions as to how can we determine who are going to be good candidates to bladder So when patients come in for a deceased donor transplant or a living donor transplant, should we give them the option of receiving bladder um, and if we do give them bilatacept, is there a non-invasive way, so not just doing a biopsy, but another way to monitor to see if they will develop rejection in the future? So we looked at the immune profiles of our patients um, to see if that there's any sort of lymphocyte um, profile that could actually predict who, was, who is going to actually have rejection in our population. So uh, we prospectively enrolled 20 patients from May 2016 and May t- uh, March 2017, this consisted of eight deceased donors and 12 living donor recipients. Um, they received bilatacept according to our Genova bilatacept protocol, which includes receiving two doses of thymoglobulin after their transplant. Um, and they received a loading dose of bilatacept on post-op day one, post-op day four, as well as every two weeks up to the three-month mark, followed by monthly doses of bilatacept. Um, and they were initially on cellcept, and after... Um, one month, if there were no any medical contraindications, were switched over to Everolimus. All the patients were continued on um, steroid maintenance therapy. So their blood samples were collected before the time of transplant, as well as the times when they came in for either a cause biopsy or a protocol biopsy. So for the patient characteristics, so we have um, a total of 20 patients here, and this is divided to patients who have borderline rejections and acute rejections. Um, we did not have any highly sensitized patients among our, um, among our study. So at, for our study, we found patient, uh, four patients who had rejections. So two patients had a CR1A, so acute cellular rejection 1A. Um, one was at four-week mark. Another one was at the six-week mark. Another one had a higher-grade rejection, um, a CR2B, at um, two-month mark. And the last patient had an um, antibody rejection at four-month mark. Three of the patients, so the first, actually these three patients, the ACR1 and ACR2B, were actually not on um, Everolimus yet because of medical indications, so they were actually on CELSEPT at the time of rejection. For the protocol biopsies, um, we found that six of the patients had borderline changes and nine patients did not have any significant findings on their biopsy. So at the 12-month mark, um, 18 patients still remain on bilatacept. Two patients, so the patients who had the ACR2B and the AMR, were converted to tacrolimus. And in terms of what we found with the immune profiling, um, so we looked at several you know, lymphocyte profiles because there's been studies out there trying to identify what would be good markers to look for um, patients who will be actually at high risk for bilatacept rejection. From our study, we found that patients who have high levels of CD8 positive, CD28 negative cells were at higher risk for having both either borderline, or borderline rejection or acute rejection, or you know, full bone rejection. Um, from our data, we see that patients who have greater than 50% of this cell population are at a higher risk for having this type of rejection. And what this shows is that the production of TNF-alpha, so an inflammatory marker, is actually increased in patients who um, had rejection compared to those who had stable. Um, This is for the borderline rejection. And for the patients who um, are looking at the CD28 negative cells, we noticed that basically there's no difference in TNF-alpha production after giving bilatacept, so that means that there's no suppression of this production of inflammatory markers by giving bilatacept. 
However, for cells that are CD28 positive, there is a decrease in TNF-alpha production after um, giving bolidocept. So um, in terms of bolidocept and CD28 negative cells, so does this make sense? So for the you know, memory cells that don't have CD28, so that means that it's actually, you know, the bolidocept blockade of the 20, CD28 are actually not going to be effective. So it makes sense that patients who have a higher population of CD28 negative cells um, will be resistant to having bolidocept um, or actually have a higher risk for having rejection. So we also looked at other um, non-invasive markers to see if there's something that we could predict to see if they're going to be at higher risk for rejection after receiving bolidocept and their risk of having rejection post-transplant. Um, so one of the non-invasive tests that we've talked about before um, in prior meetings is the KSORT um, KSORT data, so for the, which is consisted of basically 17 gene tests, um, and it measures the graft immune activation in, this, in the blood cell, and it actually um, predicts the rejection before the serum creatinine goes up, so it would be a good marker to tell if someone is actually developing rejection. So this looks at our data of our patients. Um, this is the pre-transplant samples that we received. Um, so the patients who actually had the high um, K-CERT level, so they were, at no, they were going to have high risk for rejection, were all patients who had acute rejection. Um, and after the, after the transplant, these are the samples that were collected. Uh, the patients who had the high K-CERT risk um, results were the ones who had rejection. So all four of the patients who had rejection had a high K-CERT value. Um, as well as five of the samples out of the 17 from borderline rejection um, showed that they had high K-sort risk of having um, signs of rejection. So this approximate 40% chance of someone having rejection because of a positive K-sort study is similar to what we would see in patients who are on calcineurin inhibitors. So another non-invasive um, tool that we could also use is so the, the urine, um, so use serum, a urine common rejection module, um, it looks like 11 genes um, from the urine sample to see if there's any predictors of someone who's going to have rejection. For our data, um, so this looks at the use serum score. So uh, the patients who had stable functions, so didn't have any evidence of rejection on their biopsy, had a lower use serum score compared to those who had acute rejection and those who had borderline rejection. And those also are um, corresponding to the patients who were on um, the standard calcineurin inhibitors. So in conclusion, I think that you know, we have several things that we could use in our toolbox um, to predict who could be um, good recipients for um, bladicep. So we could you know, measure the um, immune profiles looking at their CD28 negative levels. If they're high, then you know, we would recommend not using bladicep. But if it's low, then it would be a good chance to have the patient to you know, pr- you know, get the benefits of being on bladicep. Other things that we could use prior to transplant would also be the K-SORT study, since we've seen that patients who rejected had a high K-SORT level before transplant. Um, After post-transplant, since patients are at a high risk for having rejection, we could use both the K-SORT as well as the U-serum to see if patient is developing rejection. Is there some, you know, should we do a biopsy or not? So nowadays, when one of our surgeons wants to put a patient on Bella, we get a uh, we do we get a blood uh, sample. We run the flow on the patient, and our cutoff is 50% of CD8 cells that are CD28 positive or negative. If greater than uh, 50% of the CD8 cells are CD28 negative, then we we'll tell the surgeon the patient is not a good candidate for 
for Bella. So all the patients for the next year that are going to get transplanted on Bella-Tasip will have the lower level of CD28 uh, negative cells, and maybe next year we'll give you a follow-up on these results. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.